911, what's the nature of your emergency? Good morning, police, fire, military, and families, and to everybody who is listening in on the Tactical Living Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Walton, and I love Tuesday mornings like this because I am not spending them alone, which always fills my heart. There's nothing that I like more than getting to share time and space with somebody who's willing to gift me their time, especially this early in the morning. And today is no exception because I am joined with my friend, Mr. J.P. McMichael. J.P., how are you? I'm good. How are you, Ashley? I'm good too. Thank you. So for everybody who is listening, there is this incredible bio that I can go through um, with JP, but instead I thought I might have him just kind of walk us through a little bit of his story and his background. Good morning, you guys. So JP, can we start with what you do currently for a living? Yes, I have three things that I do currently. So I am in my 23rd year with the Sheriff's Office in Arlington, Virginia. I'm a professor at Marymount University in the Criminal Justice Division, and then I also own Catalyst of Change Associates, and so I'm an author for kids' books, and I also go around uh, North America and speak on PTSD and suicide. Is that all? So how did you get started in law enforcement? Um, so when I was 21, I started applying all over the place and finally got hired, I believe, when I was like 27 or 28 in there. Um, just growing up, I knew a bunch of folks, family, friends that were in law enforcement um, and just the guys around in uh, town that I grew up in that were cops. I just always thought it was a cool job and I wanted to do something to help folks. And fortunately, I was able to get in the door and um, been doing it ever since. Cool. Good morning. Yeah, that is one hell of a resume. <laughs> That's for sure. Now, you have so much to share and we're, we're going to get um, deep. You said no questions were off limits. And I really That's appreciate good. when someone says that because I definitely ask super selfish questions. So being in law enforcement today, it's, it's definitely different than what it looked like 23 years ago. So take us through some of those changes that you've seen in this profession. Um, well, fortunately where I'm at, I haven't had to deal with a lot of the bad stuff that you're seeing in the news media and things like that. Um, our county is very supportive of us. The folks where I live at, um, everywhere I go, I have very supportive folks that um, they'll come up to say hello, you know, thank you for what you're doing, that kind of thing. Um, it's just the atmosphere has changed so much. Um, there's a lot of anger towards law enforcement. And unfortunately, in the career that we're in, if one person does something bad, it impacts all of us. And we went very quickly from being everybody's hero during the beginning of COVID and everything to now where we've got protests everywhere. People are just hate everything that we do and so going from when I first started where there wasn't really much going on, you didn't have a lot of this atmosphere at the time, um, it's, but I've seen it ebb and flow. So it's come and been like this and then it's gone back to where everybody loves us and then it goes back to this and it's just back and forth. So. Okay. I know that there might be a lot of people who are having a really difficult time. And I know this because they reach out to me on a daily basis. Good morning, everybody. If you're, if you're just chiming in, if you're, if 
at any point we're talking together and you guys have any questions for JP, go ahead and put them in the comments. Um, JP, it's, it's difficult for a lot of people right now and people are questioning this career altogether. And I know you made mention that there was a time in your life where you were actually questioning your life. So if you're comfortable, if you can kind of walk us through what that journey was, what that process was, and um, really how, how you fell into potentially taking your own life. So um, back in 2001, I was in, I think it was my third or fourth year in the department. Um, I'm in early one morning, it was on 9-11 um, and we had, somebody came in, I was in court, we were gonna have a trial that day and somebody came in and said that a plane had flown into a building in New York and so a couple of us that were in the courtroom were thinking I was one of those little biplanes or something or near airports. Um, and it wasn't long after that, somebody else came back in and said another plane hit the, hit the second building. And where we're at, where our courthouse is, you can see the Pentagon from there. So when we heard that the second plane hit, we knew something was going on. And we did, I mean, we didn't have any idea it was going to be at the level that it was, but we knew something was going on. And then, one of our guys came across the radio or the, one of the dispatchers came across the radio said the Pentagon was on fire. So we're looking out the window, you can see the smoke. And one of our guys came across and said, the Pentagon's not on fire. I'm on 110. A plane just flew over my head into the side of the Pentagon. So at that point we got everybody, we told everybody they needed to get out of the courtroom. And just so happened when I walked out the, courtroom door, one of our sergeants threw me a set of keys and said, go do what you got to do. So I got down, I get down, I get in the cruiser and I'm leaving and just the stress level of it, not knowing what I'm going into, I went up, pull out of the department and start heading over there. And I couldn't remember how to get to the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. And I drive by there every day. Um, so we come around the corner and that was very brief, but come around the corner, the traffic's backed up. People are getting out of their cars and directing the traffic to get out of our way so we can get over there. Um, and I just remember I came around the corner <clears throat> into the parking lot of the Pentagon and you could see the building was on fire. Everybody was running from the building. Um, it was just, nobody knew what to do. You couldn't get on the radios. Um, so we're running around, we're trying to get people out of the buildings. <clears throat> we had to block off, uh, we had to make sure traffic wasn't coming from the city into Arlington and nobody was going across the bridge. Cause at that point we knew we, there was, we were being attacked. We just didn't know what was going to happen next. Um, and at one point myself, and I believe it is now the um, current, he's the police chief now with Arlington County police department. We were standing up on the bridge across from the Pentagon and blocking traffic off and call comes across the radio and says that there's plane five minutes out coming up the river. So we're like, all right. And then a minute later, the audible tone hits on the radio. So there's this loud audible tone that'll come across and let you know that there's an emergency. Everybody needs to pay attention. What's coming across. Mm -hmm. So it goes down four minutes, three minutes, two minutes of this plane's coming. And I turned to him and I was like, we picked a great place to stand. We're going to end up getting killed right here. And it was shortly after that, that the, they came across and said that it was not, that it was a friendly plane. And it turned out to be, I think it was two planes coming up from Norfolk. 
that ended up intercepting flight 93. Mm -hmm. And we found out that's what they were, but nobody knew at that point. So we get over to where the Pentagon got hit. There's helicopters landing there. We're pulling people out of the building. Um, you've got people running from the building. And every time that you would get near the building, they would come across the radio and or come across the PA system there and tell you to back up because the building was unstable. So you get close, they come across, tell everybody to back up. You'd go back in, they tell you to back up. And, and eventually you saw the final pictures of it where the floors all collapsed. Um, we were out there, it was all day and it was just a complete, it was a cluster. Um, you couldn't get on the radios. Nobody knew what was happening, where the media was at. At one point in the day, I ended up, there used to be an old gas station across probably about two football field lengths from where the Pentagon got hit. And that's where they set the media up at. And the media is reporting that 800 people got killed in the building because they didn't know at the time that section was closed. They hadn't opened it yet. They had just got done re, um, renovating it. So we're hearing 800 people were in there. They're saying that bombs are going off in DC. They're evacuating the Capitol building, evacuating the White House. Um, and the whole time this is going on, you've still got the building burning. You've still got people flying up there. Um, we've got the crime scene area set up. We're trying to keep people away from the building. And you still had people at one point, um, the young girl, probably early 20s, she runs past me and I had to chase her down to not far from where the plane hit. And when I caught up to her, she had that thousand yard stare in her eyes. And I'm like, what are you doing? And she's like, I left something on my desk. And I just turned and I pointed at the building and it was, she just stood there for a minute and then snapped out of it. But that was what you were seeing from people. Um, we had a general at one point was there and he's yelling at us because we wouldn't let him in to get his car out of the parking lot while all this is going on. And it, it, it was the whole morning was a complete clusterfuck to say it simply. Um, and at one point it was probably late afternoon. I turned around and I saw a bunch of our judges sleeves rolled up carrying water um you know you had people from the community coming in and they were they were bringing food they were you know just coming in to check on people and this went on throughout the night i think i finally got relieved there at like two or three in the morning and we you know we're you're pulling people out of there you don't know who made it who didn't make it um, and you didn't hear about a lot of the the folks because they were you'd get them out. And if they were still alive, they were taking them and putting them either on the plane to get them out of there or ambulances or whatever they were doing. They had a makeshift morgue set up around the corner. And you still got I mean, all night you've got people showing up from different agencies. I mean, this went on for I think I was down there on and off for a week. And, but we had guys that were down there for months after that, sifting through everything. And, you know, you go through that part. And at that point, I'm young in the agency. I'm, I had just gotten on our peer support team probably six months before that. So I'm thinking to myself, I'm good. I know what's going on. 
Um, and one of the things when I was on, when I was on the bridge and, you know, we're getting the calls for the planes and stuff, you couldn't, you couldn't use your cell phones. Mm-hmm. And so my family didn't know where I was. My wife at the time, and I was married for about a year at that point. She had no idea where I was. I couldn't get through to her. Um, and I think I finally got home. It was probably three, four in the morning, somewhere in there it was early. I had no idea. I hadn't seen New York. I had heard about the plane, but again, you were hearing reports of the plane got shot down. The plane crashed. It, you, the media had all kinds of stories going at that time. I mean, I didn't see anything from New York or the plane probably till that weekend. Hmm. And it was just, it was constant nonstop the whole time. And then when we got to, it's probably that, that weekend was when we finally got to, you know, just kind of sit down and take stuff in. But the whole time I'm thinking, I'm good. I know, I know this peer support stuff. I'm teaching people. I'm, I'm good to go. And you fast forward to 2003 and I had been withdrawing the entire time. Um, I would go to work, I would come home, I would go upstairs, lock myself in a room, lights off. I didn't want anything to do with anybody. Um, and at that point, my wife at the time, I think it was like May ish. It was right around police week. Um, yeah, it was right around police week cause I got in a car accident during police week. And a couple of weeks after that, she was like, I'm leaving. I can't deal with this anymore. And where I lived at, my family was right down the road. So we all lived in that same same little community. And she was in grad school at the time. So when she left, I didn't tell anybody. I was already having enough issues as it was. I was embarrassed. I felt like I'd failed. And so for six months, nobody knew. Every time my family would call. I'd be like, Oh, she's at school. She's at work, whatever. And then October of that year, I did, I couldn't deal anymore Um, between not sleeping every day, seeing what happened there. Anytime the audible things went off on our radio, it didn't matter where I was standing at. I was back on that bridge again. And so I got up that morning. I I remember it being just a beautiful morning. It was just like nine 11. It was a beautiful day. And I opened the door up, sat down on my couch and I wrote my note out and, you know, apologized to everybody, um, to my family, to my friends, people at work, um, that it wasn't because of that. I just couldn't deal with it anymore. And I wrote out all the stuff that I was going through and put my gun to my head. And as I started to pull my trigger back, um, for whatever reason, at that point, my wife popped into my head. And I knew at that point, if I did this, that they were going to blame her because at that point, still nobody knew. And she's literally, I, the trigger was going back when that happened. And she is the only reason that I'm standing here today, because if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be sitting here. Um, and my family didn't, my mom and my sister could not stand her for the longest time and didn't know anything about it. And last year, I spoke at the world conference on crisis and trauma and my whole family was there. My kids were there. Um, the two ladies that Irene Hajasava and Kathy Thomas, who did EMDR on me and 
basically were the ones that saved my butt. They were there. My mentors from peer supports. I had everybody like that had made me to where I was at that point was there watching me speak. And I told this story. And when it got to the point of where my mom knew that I had almost shot myself, but she didn't know why I didn't. And when I told that part of the story, she, um, she just, you could hear her sobbing in the back. And that was, it was, it was almost like a full circle kind of thing with that. Um, being able to stand up there and tell that. And, you know, I get, I probably a couple months after that, I'm still struggling bad. Um, and a guy that I was in rehab with from my shoulder, I'd injured my shoulder um, working out. And he's like, something's not right with you. These guys are coming in. Um, John, uh, Jim Horn, who was an FBI profiler, and Irene and Kathy had started doing its PCIS now. But they had started doing this with the responders from Maryland, D.C. and Virginia. So it was like a three-day thing that they would bring you into and you would do this three-day group process. And in between, they would pull you out. They had a massage therapist there. They were doing EMDR. Um, and we would eat together. You could bring your family. And everybody was a close-knit group. But where we do peer support, and they usually would keep it at one, either fire or police or sheriffs. This was fire, police, sheriff, dispatchers. And there was civilians who were at the, I believe it was the Sheraton in Arlington that were helping to ID the victims and making the notifications to the family. So we're all in this three-day group. And when I went with Kathy to do EMDR, I came back in the room and everybody stopped and they were like, it looks like the weight of the world is lifted off of you. And that was the first time from doing that one session of EMDR that I had laughed in probably two years. Um, and it was, they told, they tell you in the beginning how weird it is and you're going to look at this and think it's nuts. And, but that started that process and they ended up keeping me on there as the law enforcement peer for that group for a year. And every month we would do these things and then Kathy or Irene would pull me out and we'd do the EMDR. And I was doing really good. Um, and you move up a few years later, I had lost one of my buddies and this goes back to my ex. Um, I'm in a store one night, I think it was 2011, 2010, 2011, somewhere in there. She calls me and she's like, Oh, did you hear about John? And, John Stringfellow was a Maryland state trooper. I grew up with him. I played baseball with him. And um, so he had been involved in a shooting. A dad, I believe, had kidnapped his two little girls, gets in a pursuit with him. They stop him on the Bay Bridge and they end up, John ends up shooting him. And he can see the little girls in the back. So he's thinking he saved these little girls and he runs up to the car and dad's already shot him. And a year later, and this was when this was the day that I got the call, he's coming across the bridge from a session therapy session at his mom's driving him. And he's like, I don't feel good. Can you stop the car? And he jumped. Mm -hmm. So my ex calls me and she's like, did you hear about John? And I was like, no. And she tells me. And from that night, I started having these dreams again 
and it would be him jumping, but then it would turn into me. Mm-hmm. And it started the whole spiral. And a few months after that, one of my buddies, this was Easter and a couple months down the road, one of my buddies from the police department, I think he was early thirties. He finds out that he, um, he's got brain cancer collapsed during SWAT training. So for that next year, um, me and a couple other folks, we would help him get to and from appointments. His wife was pregnant at the time. They had been trying to have kids for years. So we spent, it was probably about a year taking him to and from appointments. And um, he ended up passing away the month after his son was born. And have you ever read the book Tuesdays with Maury? Mm-hmm. Um, can't remember. It's, uh, Mitch Album is a sports writer and he had this one professor named Maury and he would every Tuesday he would go over to his house and interview him. And it was about it's a little tiny. If you ever get a chance to read it, it's one of the best books ever. But it's the lessons he learns from him every Tuesday having lunch with him. And with Jeff. Every time I got to take him somewhere, I would get to hear about his family, what his concerns were, what. Um, what his hopes were for his son. And when he passed away, that it really, it spiraled me down because I, I was just starting to get better from other stuff. And then I lose John, I lose him and seeing everything. What ended up coming out of that though, was I got to do his eulogy at his funeral And I got to tell his family everything that he had told me during those trips. And I really struggled after that point. But I always kept that eulogy. I had like a 15 or 16 page eulogy I wrote and I kept it so I could look at it. And um, that ended up, it ended up being the catalyst for the kids book that I wrote, Why Won't You Play With Me? Because I started back down that rabbit hole with the depression and the PTSD and was having flashbacks. And, um, my son came in and I think he was seven or eight, seven at the time, something six or seven. And I'm just laying in my room, you know, just having a day. I don't want anything to do with anybody. And he comes up and he's like, why won't you play with me? And for whatever reason that, I'm laying there and I'm thinking to myself, what the hell am I doing? You know, I, I just, I can still see his face to that day and how sad he was. And I end up, you know, I get up and I start thinking about stuff and it was a very slow process. It wasn't like I woke up and got better all of a sudden. And even while, while that stuff's going on, I was, um, I was fighting so I did um, jujitsu and MMA stuff, and I had gone down that summer after Jeff had passed to Norfolk and competed in a um, tournament, which ended up being the last time I got to fight. And I'm training, I was supposed to fight in December of that year up in New Jersey. And some, I think it was like the beginning of October, I'm training and my neck pops. And I lose feeling in my arms. So I go into the doctor and he's looking at my neck and they're at first they thought that I had early onset MS. They did 
the they shove you in that little tube thing and they do the brain scan and they saw all these spots and stuff and so he's like the symptoms are early onset ms so i'm reading what i've got and i'm looking i'm freaking out and i go to the neurologist and he's like no you've been punched in the head one too many times he's like that's what all these little spots are so they go in and they do, they scan my neck and my, if this was my spine, they said about this much of him, it was only like a very small part of it was not fractured. Mm-hmm. So they had to go in and fuse five, six, and seven. And he told me at that point, he's like, you, you probably aren't going to be able to fight anymore, that kind of thing. Um, but then they did the surgery and I was within two weeks, I was back in the gym. It was quick. Um, and I felt great, but they went back in and he's like, no, he's like, you're, you have more issues with your neck. Um, so you're not gonna be able to do that. So again, I'm going from, I'm doing something that I love doing. It gives me an outlet. And so I have to stop doing that. So then I'm even more depressed than I was because now the one thing that I really like doing, I can't do anymore. They did the surgery. I was back to work, I think 12 weeks. And then um, in 2015, I was standing in a store and lose feeling in my arms again. And then my legs went. So I call, I call him and it was quiz, probably like 30 seconds a minute where it's just like I didn't have any feeling at all. So they end up getting me over. I go see him again and they tell me that the second um, the second disc is now the same as the other one was it's a mess so he brings me in and he said you're not gonna be able to be a cop anymore he's like i've done this he, he does a lot of surgeries on first responders and he said i've never had anybody come back from this to full duty um, and he goes i can't guarantee you're going to be able to walk because of where this is at he said i can guarantee if you don't have the surgery you're not going to be able to walk but we might be able to fix this. So they ended up having to go in and pull everything out. And now two through seven is all titanium. So I go in there. I didn't tell anybody what he said. Um, So I am the night before the surgery, I'm standing in my kids doorways. I'm crying. I don't know if I'm going to be able to play with them anymore or not. Um, I don't know that I'm going to be, when I wake up, I don't know that I'm going to be able to walk. I don't know that I'm going to be able to go back to my job. And I don't think I slept that night, but when I got there in the morning, I was like, all right, I can, I just got to stay positive. And um, so we go in, they do the surgery and I wake up as they're rolling me down the hall and the nurse hits me on the arm and says, all right, get your big ass up and walk into the room. So I was like, oh, I got that part done. So I go in, I start um, doing the, the rehab and stuff for it. And I think it was it was actually the Marine Corps Marathon. So that last weekend in October, I went back to full duty. And I, I had told the doctor when I went back in, I was like, I'm not, I understand what you told me, but I'm not, I'm not buying it. Um, you, you see so often when the doctor or somebody that's in an authority position will tell you this has got to be this way and this has got to be that way. And people just accept it. 
And I had, I think, like seven years left before I could retire. And I was not given the county any of my money back. So I was bound and determined I was getting back to do that. What, what that allowed me, though, when I was going through that, being on light duty and having to be at home, it got me to start thinking about stuff. And I'm like, if I can get through this, I can deal with this other stuff. I, you know, and I still had the, the interaction I had with my son that morning. So I started writing this book about the conversations because I started talking to him every night. I would ask him questions and or he would ask me questions i'm sorry but he would ask these questions that like an old person would not ask you and when i speak now i tell people he's like a 99 year old that's trapped in a 10 year old's body he's he's just very intuitive he's got this um he, he knows when you're not happy kind of thing and so i write this book and I didn't put it out or anything because I'm like, oh, this is not nobody's going to want to read this. And I finally, I finally decided to put it out and it's the conversations that I had with him. And there's a little workbook at the end, because when you're going through PTSD, um, it's hard to it's hard to you don't even know what you're going through. Um, everything's bouncing around so much. Everything's all over the place. You don't it's hard for you to explain it let alone trying to get a kid to understand it. So I put this workbook in the back so that the child has a place to write down what they're thinking and, you know, why are you valuable to them? What do they enjoy doing with you? Um, and then the parent does the same. And in the very beginning of it, there's a love play. Um, it's like a little agreement that you sign. And when you do work and you're, you're, dealing with people that are in crisis one of the things is you, if you can get them to say that they won't do anything or to sign the little paper that says oh i promise not to harm myself most of the time it's very high rate that they're not going to because they've made that commitment so i put this in there to make a commitment if you can't spend time with your kids to explain why don't just not be there um, because our in our jobs we're you miss so much stuff and I had missed a ton of stuff with him. And every night when I would have these conversations with him, I was realizing the impact that I had on him. And he would ask me things like, why would you want to harm yourself? Why would anybody want to hurt other people? Why would somebody fly a plane into a building? Um, and last year, I know I'm jumping all over the place, but <laughs> um, last year we do the 9-11 race um, 5K in Arlington every year. So I got to take him to the Pentagon for the first time. And we're there and I, I'm showing him the benches and the representation of the benches. And we get up to the wall where the plane hit and I lost it. And he comes up and he puts his arm around me and he goes, okay, dad, I think it's time to go home now. And this is a nine-year-old. And, you know, we get back to the car. I'm still crying. He's crying. We get home. Everybody goes in the house and he 
stops me and he's like, can we have a conversation? And so I'm like, oh, that'll be good. <laughs> so he goes, he goes, I just wanted you to know he's up on the steps listening to me now. He's like, <laughs> he's like, I just wanted, I, I wanted you to know I got so upset because I was afraid when I saw you there that you were going to hurt yourself again. And you talk about like getting kicked in the gut. Um, and then, you know, I got to, I, I put the book out and last, out last year, I got to go do this conference and everybody was there. He actually got to do the book signings with me and I mean, he's just a little ham. So he starts signing the books and he's reading people's IDs and he's like, thank you for buying a copy. I hope to see you again soon. And good Lord. So, <laughs> And, you know, all this, everybody talks about all the, the stuff that I do. And like you said, all the resume and I, I'm not anything special. I do all this stuff because it keeps me busy. Um, it allows me to not think about things. And one thing when I, the day that I sat there in October, when you stand there at the edge of that abyss and you are, you're this close to, to ending your life and you don't, you realize how important it is and how valuable it is. Um, I don't remember the gentleman's name. Um, they did it. It was on Netflix. He was going to jump off the, um, it was a golden gate bridge. It's Kevin something. I can't think of his last name, but only eight people have survived that jump. And he's one of them. And he said that he was there. He was depressed. And he saw this little old lady walking up to him. And he thought, somebody's actually going to ask me if I'm, you know, how I'm doing. And she handed him her camera and said, can you take a picture of me? <laughs> and he took the camera and he took a picture of her and he handed her the camera back and he jumped. And he said, the minute my feet left that bridge, all I could think was that I want to live. And when they interviewed the other seven people that survived it, every one of them said the same thing, that they were the minute they left, they wanted to live. And it was the same when, when I realized how close I came to ending my life. And I started talking about stuff with people and what I was going through. And I saw that it was helping people, especially in our profession, because it's, at that time you were not allowed to talk about anything like that. Um, I can't tell you how many times I got pulled out of roll calls talking about it, um, told we don't discuss this. But I knew there was something there. I knew that I had the ability to help people that were struggling. And I've, and it's gone across. So when I started the company in 2017, and I had been speaking on and off, but when I started that and I put the book out and um, I went up to Canada to speak at their national conference. And when it got done, I had so many guys coming up to me and you would see I'd be doing a book signing and you'd see like a line of people. It was mostly the women and the guys would be all over the place, like around the perimeter watching. And as everybody would leave, somebody would come up and be like, Oh, I got this friend that's going through this. And 
but they were talking. And, you know, when I wrote the book, I started looking into the PTSD and the effects that it has on kids. And they did a study with the responders to the um, towers on 9-11. And every one of them that had PTSD, their kids were showing the same exact signs. Hmm. And you see kids that are 10, 11, 12 completing suicide now. And I can't even imagine when I was 10 or 11 or 12, I was playing with like GI Joes. Um, we didn't have social media, obviously. We didn't have, we had those big phones that you carry in bags and stuff back then. But this, the pressures that kids are under, and I think back to my son, and you don't think at the time, he told me one day, he's like, when you would get mad, you were really scary. And you don't think about that. And before I became a cop, I was a wrestler. And you know, you put on this whole character, you do your act and all this stuff. And you, you can't tell I'm six foot three and 280 pounds. So for this little guy, when I'm blowing up about something, because when you have PTSD, you're all over the damn place. Like you can be happy one minute and the next minute you're ready to go through a wall. When he told me, he's like, you're really scary. And I stopped and thought about it. That that killed me. Um, and I, it's hard to reach when you try to talk to law enforcement. They're all like in the conferences and they're like this and they, you know, they got to have the, the macho thing about them. So when I started talking about the kids and I started talking about my son, you would slowly see the arms come down because they were realizing this is going to impact somebody besides me. Mm-hmm. And you don't think about that at the time. And, you know, I, I told the story about when we went to the Pentagon and, you know, we're sitting here one day and we're watching Moana. I don't know if you've had the joy of watching that gem of a movie 8,000 times. My husband is like my child sometimes. So yes, I have. We're, we're good like that. <laughs> <laughs> so we're watching this movie and he, he turns to me and goes, are you thinking of your friend, Jeff? I'm like, why would I be thinking about him after watching that? And the director or somebody's name was Jeff something. And so he, I guess the name had come up and he goes, well, his name was just on the screen. And that means he's thinking of you in heaven. So I'm like, where the hell does this kid come up with this stuff? But um, I, I tell those stories and you just see people like they can relate because nobody wants a kid to go through anything. And just like it did for me when I'm reading these stories and I saw him that morning and I'm like, this is not just me. This is impacting him. And my daughter now is at that point, she was real little. So she had no idea what was going on. When the book came out, I had the the illustrator. It made it look like me and look like him. So he was all excited. He's in a book. So then she comes up and goes, where's my book? I didn't get a book. So <laughs> I wrote another, I wrote a book after that one called Specially You from, you know, they're in elementary school and you, you see the, um, and this goes to the, the suicide stuff with kids, the body image stuff, um, when they start to realize their differences and people always say, oh, you know, they're in school, it's the best time of their life. Those kids have so much stress on them 
it's it's frightening with social media with the they're trying to figure themselves out they're trying to understand their body but when you watch them they don't have any of the biases that we do they don't have any of the hate that we do and at some point from when they're little to when they become an adult they we get the mentality that we have where we get these things inside of us and we look at people and we quickly judge them and we hate this and we hate that. They don't have any of that. They, it doesn't matter what their friends look like. They just want to hug them. They want to tell them they love them have a good night. And so I wrote this book called especially you to talk about the differences they have in that, you know, you could be big, you could be small. Um, that no matter who you are, it's not about what you look like. It's about the person that you are. Um, and I think as everything that I've gone through, I've become much more aware of all the crap around me because like I said, it's when you, when you're to that point where you're, you're almost ending your life, then you realize how precious it is that you have it. I, see the stuff they're going through. I started going around and speaking and doing the presentation on the books and I'm hearing stories about other people's kids. And a lot of times when I talk and I talk about the fighting and the wrestling and stuff, that's what gets the guys to latch on. They could care less about what I'm up there talking about. They, they just like, Oh, where'd you do this? Where'd you do that? Who'd you fight? But it gets them talking. So I'm going to do, I'm absolutely shameless with this. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get somebody to talk. I don't care if you're the biggest, toughest person in the room or, you know, the smallest little, you know, you just want to hug everybody kind of person. But if, when I go out to speak, if I can get one person to open up, one person to reach out to me, um, that's what I'm about. That's what I want to do because I know that feeling. And I don't want, and nobody should ever have to be sitting on their couch, writing a note out to their family, apologizing. And to the point where you're pulling a trigger back on a gun or whatever the case may be. Um, so that's, I, that's why I do so much stuff because it keeps me busy. I started walking um, this guy, Chris Thorpe, that's out in California with Operation Enduring Warrior. I'm watching him one day and he's carrying a pound of weight for every officer suicide. And, you know, last year we had 228 suicides this year where I believe at 125 right now. So this was right around the 60 point. I'm like, this guy is going to get crushed. He's no way to be able to carry this much weight. So he was talking one day and uh, whatever it was, it just stuck with me. So I reached out to him and I said, Hey, you mind if I start carrying this weight with you? And he's like, no, go ahead and start doing it. So you carry the weight every night and you shoot these little videos and it's just whatever you're thinking. And he calls me like a week later. He's like, dude, you don't stop talking. He's like, these videos are like two minutes. And he's like, you got these hour long videos about stuff. And I'll, I'll start talking about something and I'll get focused on it. And, you know, when it, what I found from doing those every night, it not only I was able to like reach out to people and I have people in the community like, why are you walking around with this bag on your back? And 
getting them to talk and see what we were doing. But it also helped me because every time I would talk about something, it would make me reflect on something and make me think about something. And during that time, this past April, my dad passed away and I did one of the videos on there and it was probably like an hour and 20 minutes. It was long, but I'm in my parking lot I'm, or in my driveway. I'm bawling my eyes out talking about him and about all the stuff we've been through. And, um, every, everything has always, I, I do stuff to help other people. And Chris called me out on this because he asked me, he was like, why do you do these things? And I'm like, oh, I want to help people. And he's like, bullshit. He's like, you're getting something out of it. And I didn't think about it until that point. But when I go up to talk or when I when I do these videos or whatever it is, I am reflecting on stuff I've been through. And it makes me better. It gives me an opportunity not to only talk to my kids and help them. But now that I'm teaching, I've got these young people that are coming in. They want to come into criminal justice. And unlike most professors where they stand up and they just kind of go read from the book or here's your assignment. The first week of class, I get up and I tell my story. And I'm like, look, this is, I can teach you what's in this book, but that's not what this career is about. This is going to encompass your whole life. This is going to, if you allow it to, it will eat you alive. And so I try to teach what I'm supposed to teach, but I also talk to them about health and wellness. I talk to them about the stresses that they have in their lives and how I understand that they don't have it easy. And that this is not the best time of their life, that they're stressed out, they're, home, they're away from home for the first time. I had so many kids my first semester message me that they were suffering with depression that they were glad I had one student this semester that said, I've been struggling with this for so long and to know I'm not alone. And to me, that's sad that you've been in school for three years and none of your teachers, these people that are supposed to be mentoring you and teaching you are not doing this stuff. And I don't know if it's because I'm old now or whatever, but the focus I've taken, it's not on me anymore. I want to help people get up to where I'm at. I want to help them get past where I am. I want to see them do good things. Um, I just, I just shot a video just past nine 11. It was the first time I had to speak at an Americans with disabilities Act conference. Um, our department got sued and I, got put in the role of being the coordinator for the Americans with disability stuff for the inmates that we have in custody and anybody that comes into our courthouse or anything like that. And so now I go out and I get to speak on that and I do a class on PTSD for vets and first responders that are coming back to college for the first time for the higher education um, coordinators. And this year I told them, I said, I'll speak at the conference, but don't schedule me on 9-11. And then it ended up going, they switched it around, switched it around. And then they called me like the week before and they're like, all right, we got you on the 10th and the 11th. Um, you're going to be doing four presentations. So I'm like, great. 
um, for for 19 years, I have spent every 9-11 either up in the mountains, driving around somewhere. I turn everything. I don't want to be around anybody. I don't want to see it. I don't want to hear it. And this year I took three of my students. I asked them, I said, look, they're having a hard time getting internships. Do you mind? Can we get them here for this and let them sit in and talk to people and get to know them? So they're like, sure. Those kids both days went out of their way to, and I call them kids. They're not kids. They're like 20, early twenties. But, and I, I found out those two days, just how adult they are. Um, they reached out to me both days throughout the day. How are you doing? I know this is a tough time for you. Are you doing okay? All throughout the time. Man, it was the first time in 19 years that I have been around people on 9-11. It was the first time I got to speak on 9-11. And I came back home that Friday night and I was, bl I was blown away by these kids. Um, and it was it, that time is always very hard for me. And it was harder this time because with COVID, um, there's no speaking engagements anywhere. I had so many things lined up and they all got canceled. So, you know, that Sunday I drove out to Skyline Drive and I shot a video and told people that at the end of the year, I'm probably shutting the company down because it should, I, you put so much into these things because you love them. Um, but at some point you have to accept the fact that I can love things all that I want, but I'm putting all of my money into this and I'm not getting anything back and I can continue to do this, but it's not, it's going to drain everything that I've got. So I drove up there and I'm, I, I shot this video about doing this and it, what, what I planned on talking about with the company stopping ended up turning into thanking these kids because I would never have been able to do all that stuff those two days if it wasn't for them checking on me. And I didn't have that before. Most people would avoid me because they didn't want to, you know, they knew I was not good those days. But to have people that had known me for three weeks that just went out of their way to do that it's those kind of things that when you go through stuff like this, that just keeps you wanting to continue to do it, to want to talk about what you've been through, no matter how painful it is, because you know, somebody out there is going to get helped by it. And one of the, one of the young ladies told me her story that um, those two days and all the stuff she's been through that I was just, I, I couldn't even imagine. Um, and I always, you know, I've been through a lot of crap and people are like, Oh, you've done all this stuff. And I, I heard her story. And I couldn't have done what she did. I couldn't have went through what she did. I don't, I don't think anything that I do is special. I stand up and Chris talks about this. We're, we're two big goofy guys carrying this weight around trying to get a message out. When I go to talk, I'm not 
I'm no genius in this. I'm not an expert in this. I just think I'm a guy that has a story to tell. And I think I understand it because I got to the point that most people have never gotten to. So I understand a little bit to what it's like to go through that. And I think that's how I'm able to reach people. And every time I talk, it sucks. It's painful, but I learn. Um, last year when we, we did the, the conference I was telling you about in the beginning, lady came up to me at the end of the conference and said, I have this note for you, but don't open it now. So I'm like, all right. And I got back to my room and she had told me when she handed me a note, she said, a friend of mine, I sent her your picture from the program. And she said she knew you and wanted you to have this message. So I get back up to my room and I open this and she said, I met you the year after 9-11. <clears throat> my husband was in the Pentagon and was killed that day. Thank you for continuing to tell this story and keep him alive through the work that you're doing. Don't ever stop. And the night before I had done, or the day, two days before I had done a presentation, I was beating myself up. I was like, I didn't do good. I missed parts. And I needed that. I needed that little reminder that what I'm doing is important. And I believe we're all on a journey. We're all on a path and we're here for a reason. We don't have any clue what it is, but everybody crosses our path for a reason. And if you're open to it, you'll learn from them, good or bad. And I've always found when I've had struggles like I did that day, I, I have that person that crosses my path just for a minute to remind me of what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And I hope that I do that for somebody else. Um, but I've always, I've always had that happen. Every time I've struggled with something or thought that I'm not doing the right thing with this and, you know, why am I putting all this effort into this? There's always somebody or something that will come along and remind me of why I do this. Yeah. And the fact that you actually pay attention to it, which that's kind of the part that a lot of people miss um, a lot of the times. And we, we have so many comments going off um, inside of the comment feed. And I did ask for you guys at the beginning, if you had any questions to go ahead and to put them in there. And I know that we do have several of them. So I'm going to ask that JP goes on there after we're done here and, and responds to all of those for, for everybody. And I, I just... There's been so many times during this interview that I wanted to reach out and, and just hold on to you and to give you a hug because you are so real and so vulnerable. And there's so many people commenting about how, how much thanks they have that you are here and you are stepping up and showing up and adding the value that you have. And you, you took us along such a journey and there's so much richness and depth into everything that you've went through in, in being a first responder and going through the, the horrible day that changed everybody's life and having to be one of the first people to respond to the Pentagon during 9-11 and, you know, almost taking your life and you shared your beautiful son with us and he, he, everybody loves him in the comments. And I think that he is certainly turning into an amazing young man and that's all due to you. And you're, you're very humble and saying it's just a story, just something that you've been through. And I think that is a lot of the humble humbleness speaking because in my eyes, you are an incredible man. And the fact that you're willing to give the gift of, 
of your history and story to somebody else in hopes of maybe getting them to open up their their own hearts, their own minds, and maybe taking the second thought and making that that infinite decision in the way that you did. And for that, I am truly grateful and honored to even know you and for you to come on. Everybody in the comments is saying thank you too. And I know that there are links to um, Catalyst of Change. There's links to your books. There's links to all those things. And we'll go ahead and make sure to pop those in the comments too. And Appreciate I just want that. to um, truly thank you so, so much for spending this morning with us. Thanks for having me on. Have a good day. You too.